0: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I don't know about you, but at every point in my life when something good has happened to me, uh, one of the first inclinations that I have is to let my dad know. And, And one day I said, Wonder why that is. It seems like when something bad happens, I, I, I want to talk to my mother. And when something good happens to me, I, I want to tell my dad. I want my dad to know about that. And, and the more that I've thought about that over the years, the more I've become convinced that that's the way that God designed the universe uh, to be in many ways. I, I think one of the most important questions that we can have If you're a dad, if you're discipling dads, if you're part of the body of Christ uh, who has a responsibility to teach one another and to disciple one another, is to learn what every child needs to hear from his or her father. Now, I think that's an important question, and it draws me back to an interesting account in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew uh, talks about it as well. When Jesus is beginning his ministry and he encounters John the Baptist, and and you'll remember what happens in that text in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the The heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "'You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased.'" Now, Matthew's account has the voice uh, speaking in the third person, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Luke puts it into the second person, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's really no inconsistency between those two things at all because whenever uh, the Father addresses Jesus audibly— in the Gospels, Jesus' response is to say what? This voice is not for my sake, John 12, but this voice is for your sake. And so when when God is speaking to Jesus, it is for the attention and for the, the benefit of those, uh, those standing around. Jesus is already in perfect communion with his Father through the Holy Spirit. And this text, I think, is pointing out a number of things. I mean, what we have happening there on the River Jordan is... Jesus, as the, the new humanity, as the new Israel, encountering a prophet. And, and Jesus tells us uh, later on in the Gospel of Luke that John's not just a prophet. He's the greatest of the prophets. And he says that John has come in the spirit of Elijah. Now, that, that's important because it references what the Scripture teaches, the, the, last, the last two verses that we have in the Old Testament canon in Malachi, In which God says this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome Day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. That's really fascinating because here comes John the Baptist. He's in the spirit of Elijah. He's he's mimicking the life of Elijah out in the wilderness, or, or, or not mimicking it, but reliving it in, in many ways. He takes on Elijah's mantle when it comes to rebuking a a wrong-headed king uh, for Elijah, that's Ahab and, and his wife Jezebel. for John, it is Herod and his wife uh, Herodias. And now you have a situation where the prophet encounters Israel, encounters Jesus. And rather than doing what Elijah does, which is to, is to stand up and to announce you are a sinner, you have John the Baptist standing up and announcing that this one is righteous. He says, this is, this is the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And notice what happens here. Luke says that as Jesus is being baptized by John, the heavens open and God verbally announces, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then immediately after this, what happens? Gospel of Luke goes into a genealogy, and you have starting with verse 23, the genealogy that is going all the way through Jesus, all the way back to here at the end of the chapter in verse uh, 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I think it's intentional. I think it's intentional because I think what the Holy Spirit is wanting to show us is that there was a disruption between father and son, between father and children, son and daughter, that happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam is created to be the son of God. He's, he's created to uh, not only share an image uh, and likeness with his father, he's encountered also to, he's created also to share an inheritance, to be the heir of his father. And when he sins against God, there's a disruption that is happening there. God says, Adam, where are you? God sends him out of, uh, out of the place of inheritance, out of the, the house, out of the father's presence there. So there's a disruption between the father-child relationship. And in Jesus, who is the descendant of Adam, the son of God, that is now repaired. The heart of the father is turned to the children, and the heart of the children is turned to the father And then immediately Luke goes from the genealogy, goes from the the announcement of God at the baptism to the genealogy, and then from the genealogy right into the temptation. And what's happening in the temptation? In the temptation, what the devil is trying to do is to question what God had said. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. He's questioning who God said that Jesus is. That has immense ramifications for our redemption and our salvation in Christ, and it also, I think, can teach us what good God-reflecting fatherhood is is like. And and Jesus teaches us that that analogy is there and is, is real. Jesus says, when your son asks you, for a uh, a fish, you don't give him a snake. When he asks you for bread, you don't give him uh, a stone. And and that's in that way, you being evil know how to do that. How much more so your Father in heaven? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians three. Will point out that the fatherhood of God is the fatherhood from which every fatherhood on heaven and uh, in heaven and on earth is named, and so there's a there's a connection between the way that God acts as Father and the way that human beings are to imperfectly and in a creaturely way model that. I think that what we see happening in that baptism scene is one of the most important things that we can have uh, that we can that we can model. And it's one of the things that it's so easy to miss. Every child is created with a longing to hear from his or her father, you are my child, first of all. You're mine. There's there's an identity there between me and you. I'm not ashamed of you. As the book of Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to be our God. Uh, I'm not ashamed of you as your father. You're my son. And it's not just that you're my child, but you're my beloved child. I, I have love for you. And it's not just that I love you. It's that I am also well pleased with you. And I think if we miss any of those points, we really miss Modeling what it is to, to image God and to teach our children uh, what it means to look to God as, as father. I am connected to you. I am I'm your father. I love you. I, I'm glad that you're my child, and I am well pleased with you. Which means that one of the things that we have to do as fathers is to learn to cultivate and to work out the love that we have for our children, to verbally express it. Jesus is in perfect communion with his Father, and yet he still is hearing the message audibly that is coming from his Father. We, we need to say those words. Sometimes, I think as, as fathers, we assume that you know, our kids know that we love them. We don't need to continually uh, point that out and, and say that. Sometimes it may even, for some people, if they're not especially expressive, it can feel kind of awkward to do that. We need to say it. I love you. I'm glad that I'm your dad. And then to point out those aspects of our children with which we are well-pleased. Now, it's easy to do. If you have a child who shares a lot of your interests or shares a lot of your aspirations, or if you have a child who has, um, has elements in his life that are similar to you, so you can immediately connect with them. So if you were the baseball hero in your high school and your son is really doing well at baseball, it's really easy to say, hey, I am re- really admire the way that you play baseball. It's, it's a little different though if what God has gifted or is doing in your child is different from what you know. And so you're, you're the, uh, the guy who was the poet in high school, and your son is the captain of the football team, or vice versa. That, that, that becomes more difficult. You're the rugged uh, father, and your, your little girl is uh, into and is gifted in all sorts of ways that you don't get and you don't understand. And sometimes it's also difficult if, uh, if you see the beginnings of things happening within the life of your son. Maybe, uh, maybe steps that they're making in terms of, um, in terms of conscience. I have, one of my sons has a really, really sensitive conscience. And uh, which is a good thing, and I want to cultivate that. The problem is that he can easily see things entirely in black or entirely in white in ways that could lead him to become really judgmental. And so the people who are doing this are the bad people, and the people who are not are the good people. And so what I want to do with him is to correct and, uh, and to discipline in a Hebrews 12 sense, not to punish, but to shape and to form those attitudes, to say, well, I think in this situation, let's, let's not be harsh and let's not be judgmental about that. Maybe uh, this is what's going on in that person's life. But at the same time, I want to commend the sort of conscience that is, that is sensitive, uh, a conscience that is awake and is aware. Say, I'm pleased with that. I'm proud of you that you're the kind of child who really cares about what God thinks and what God has, has said. That's going to, there are going to be things like that going on in your life and in your, uh, in, in your children and in your home. And so learn to, to say those things and, and not just to praise the child who is successful by uh, the standards of, that, that you've set or that the world has set, but to, to find those those praiseworthy aspects and affirmation-worthy aspects of all of your children, however many that God has given to you. And I think the same thing is true, not only in terms of fathers and sons within the home, but the, the Bible tells us that we have fathers and children, mothers and daughters and uh, fathers and sons within the church. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of Timothy as his son. And I, I've noticed the same sort of mentality that I have of I want my dad to know about this. Why? Because I really want my father to be proud of me. I found the same thing is true with people who've been mentors in my life, with, with people who have been fathers to me. I want them, I want to know that they're not disappointed in me. Now, that can go off the rails and it can wreck your life. Because if you have a father who, who isn't proud of you uh, or a mentor who, doesn't, who is disappointed in you, uh, sometimes that can, that can become this point of despair, and you need to be reminded of the fatherhood of God and to look to, to God. But uh, there's a certain sense in which that is normal and natural. And even if you did not receive it, even if you have a father who wasn't willing to say to you, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Well, that can just remind you and give you all of the extra motivation that you need to be the kind of father or the kind of mentor or the kind of uh, older person in the faith who can look to someone else and say, you're my beloved child and with you I am well pleased. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.